This morning's text for the sermon is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 20. Now I would remind you, brethren, in what terms I preached to you the gospel, which you received in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold it fast, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God which is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." Now, if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I got a phone call this week from a little magazine uh, produced down in Florida by R.C. Sproul called Table Talk. They asked me to write a little 900-word article on the topic, Loving God for Who He Is, Not for What He Gives. I said, hmm. hmm. So I, I said, well, now, uh, I think I know what you mean. Let me try out. Do you mean that... Uh, you ought to marry a woman, not for her money, but for who she is. Yeah, that's what we mean. Oh, good. Well, I, I agree with that. But you need to understand that uh, what makes me tick, what drives me theologically and what informs the ministry of my church is this sentence. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. And therefore, every time I see God in the Bible working to meet a need of mine, I don't feel any tension between the God-centeredness of God and the orientation on me in that verse. Because every time I see God working to bless me, to meet a need that I have, what I really see is God doing something that will cause Him to be exalted as the great need meter great treasure of my life 
What makes me tick and what I love about the universe that God has made is that it's a universe in which the God-centeredness of God is the foundation of my infinite joy. And therefore, every time I see in the Bible God lavishing gifts on me, meeting my needs, satisfying my longings, I don't see man-centeredness. I see God-centeredness because what he's doing is drawing me up into his all-sufficiency so that I will bow down and say, God is my source. God is my power, my strength, my treasure, my all. And that is God-centeredness. And he says, okay, go ahead and write The reason I start with that phone conversation is because... Uh, as I read verses 12 to 20 in the last few days, I saw six needs that I have that you meet by being raised from the dead. And yet, on this Sunday morning, as we close with worthy as the Lamb and another great hymn, I want to be Christ-centered, not hyper-centered, or you-centered. I want to be Christ-exalted this morning. And so I had to meditate again. If I talk about six needs that you have, six longings in every one of your hearts that Jesus meets by rising from the dead, am I giving you glory or him? My answer is, I'm giving him glory and you joy. And that's the gospel. Let's look at these. I'm going to go at them. First of all, in verses 12 to 20, by just looking at uh, the six Things that would be in shambles if Christ was not raised. But since verse 20 says, but in fact he has been raised, I'm going to switch the shambles around to victories. And then I'm going to come back to each of those six things and ask you with me to think through whether or not in fact there's not a need and a longing of your heart represented in every one of them. Let's start at verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. But since Christ has been raised, our preaching is not in vain. Number two, second half of verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. But since he has been raised... Your faith this morning is not in vain. Number three, verse 15. If Christ has not been raised, we are found to be misrepresenting God or literally false witnesses about the work of God. But since he has been raised, the apostles are not false witnesses. They are true. Number four, verse 17. If Christ has not been raised... You are still in your sins. But since he has been raised, you are no longer in your sins. Number five, verse 18. If Christ has not been raised, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, been destroyed. But since he has been raised, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have not perished. 
finally, number six, if Christ has not been raised, we are of all men most to be pitied. But since he has been raised, we are not to be pitied, no matter what we suffer for his name. Now, what made the lights go on for me as I reflected on those six things is trying to put them in positive terms. You see, I closed everyone with a not. Not in vain, not in vain, not false. Now let's go back. And instead of affirming them negatively, try to find the positive reality that is being given to us when he rises. Now I'm going to switch the order around because the more I reflected on these, the more I saw a pattern of my own need. There is a way that I come to Christ. And there's a way that you come to Christ. And I'm sure that in a room uh, with this many people, there are people who need to come to Christ for the first time. There is a pathway along which we all come. There are a sequence of needs that Jesus, by rising from the dead, meets in all of us. And that's the order I want to take them in now. Number one, verse 17. Instead of saying negatively, That because Christ is risen, we are no longer in our sins. Let us say positively that because Christ is risen, we are forgiven. So there's the first need that we have and the longing of every heart. And I put it first because it's the foundation of every other blessing, isn't it? If if we are not forgiven And God is against us in our sin. If he has not forgiven our sin, but left us in our sin with all that judgment and all that guilt. There are no more blessings to be enjoyed. Forgiveness is the precondition of the sluice gate being opened of the avalanche of blessings that come from God. That must happen first. And so I put it first here. And I say that because he's risen, how does the resurrection connect here? Is it by his blood that we are justified? Here's the connection. There's a beautiful verse that states it wonderfully. Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered up to death on account of our transgressions, and he was raised from the dead On account of our justification. Now listen to what that means. I think the word on account of has the same meaning in both clause. Because we were transgressors, he needed to die for us so that we could be forgiven. And he did so. And when he died and his blood was shed and he said, it is finished, it was finished, and our justification was complete, period. Therefore, when the rest of the verse says he was raised because of our justification, what it means is because the justification was so complete, so finished, So sufficient, there was no need for him to remain in the grave. And God vindicated and celebrated the finished work of his death by raising his son from the dead. That's my understanding of how the resurrection relates to the death of Jesus in our forgiveness. Because the death of Christ was so sufficient, 
to cover every sin I've ever committed or ever will commit. Therefore, God looks upon his son in the grave, having achieved that masterful work of redemption and says, come on out. We're going to celebrate forever and ever. There's no reason for you to remain in that grave anymore. It is done. I will now vindicate your righteousness. I will validate your forgiving power and I will celebrate life with them and you forever and ever. The resurrection is vindication of our forgiveness, validation of our forgiveness. It was the death that wrought it. And therefore, when he came up out of the grave, he offers to us a certificate, as it were, that if you trust in him, his blood covers every sin that you've ever committed. That's our first need. I think it's a deep longing in every heart this morning. Even if you don't feel it, it's there. It comes out in ways that you may not even know. The longing to be right with God. To not have any guilt on your back that you try to drown in work or booze or drugs or sex or television or radio or music. Trying constantly to drown what can't ever be drowned except in the blood of Jesus. And that's offered to you this morning with a tremendous authentication by the resurrection of Jesus. Forgiveness. Number two, verse 14. Instead of saying negatively that our faith is not in vain, let us say positively that I have two ways to say it in mind. One is our faith is well-founded. But I want to make it more personal than that in order to tie in with the longing that's in every heart. Namely, because Christ is raised from the dead, there is someone who is absolutely trustworthy for you. Everybody wants a friend who's trustworthy. And to the degree that the people around you feel untrustworthy, to that degree... Do you have this void inside? You are made to trust someone who is absolutely trustworthy. You're made. Adam and Eve were created and put in the garden to live by faith in an absolutely trustworthy person. God. The fall was a choice not to trust God, but rather to trust their own sense of what's wise or the devil's sense of what's wise. And therefore, there's a void in every human heart that longs for a friend that will never let them down, can always be counted on, is loving enough to stick with them through thick and thin, is strong enough to overcome every obstacle to love, and will be there no matter what. When the best friend and the best relationship is over and gone, that friend will still be there. And I think that's implied in this phrase, when Jesus rose from the dead, he showed you your faith, your trust, your confidence in him is not in vain. Never will it be in vain. Never will he let you down. Never will he die. Never will he be anything other than what he was when he died for you and rose in strength for you. And so the second longing everybody brings to this service this morning is the longing for a friend who will always be there. Always be there when everybody else is gone. Your faith is not in vain. Number three, verse 15. Instead of saying negatively that the apostles are not 
misrepresenting God or not false witnesses, let us say positively that because Jesus rose from the dead, the apostolic witness is absolutely true. Everybody in this room comes in here with the need for truth this morning. There is built into every human heart the need for some absolutes. Now, I stress this because our society has given up on this. We are so far gone in America. I just read a young woman writing in the Dawn Report that she is so hopeful for Argentina because they've been broken and humiliated and humbled in the Falkland conflict and the debacle of their economy that they have no pride anymore. And therefore, she's tremendously hopeful for revival. And she is utterly despairing about America. And I almost agree. Because everywhere you turn in this society, we are told there is no absolute truth. It takes some guts and some independence for a teenager to stand up in a health class and say to everybody else, it's wrong to have sex before you marry. It's wrong for you, it's wrong for me, it's wrong for everybody, no matter what they think. Takes a lot of guts to say homosexual activity is just wrong. You can say it with tears, you can say it with compassion, but you it takes guts in America to say it because... There's just an avalanche of teaching that there is no absolute truth. All right. If you think homosexuality is wrong for you, you live that way. That's fine. But don't tell anybody else it's wrong for them. If you think premarital sex is wrong for you, fine. Don't do it. But don't import your morality over onto other people. That is America. And that's the end of America. Because... If everybody does what is right in his own eyes, there is a word for that. It's called anarchy. If there are no things that we can agree on as a culture that are right and wrong for all of us to ascribe to, we are done for because I will kill you or you will kill me. I will rip you off or you will rip me off. The only thing left is me as the law of my life. Ultimately, if you want to follow that relativism to its end point. And unless God in his awesome reviving mercy comes upon us, we're done for as a nation. We will explode into anarchy. It doesn't have to be that way because when Jesus rose from the dead, he qualified himself to tell all teenagers and all adults and all children what is true. So if anybody asks me, what right do you have to tell us that such and such is not true? I would say, it's not a right that I claim for myself, but Jesus Christ, the son of God, died and rose again. He is alive today, reigning at the father's right hand. He rules the world. He made the world. He will come back and establish his kingdom. Therefore, he has a right over the world to declare what is good for the world, what is harmful for the world. And therefore, I will declare to the world what I have seen in his word is healthy and good for the world on his authority. 
It's because he rose from the dead that he has the right to tell a health class what's true and what's false. He rose from the dead. That's why he has a right to tell newspapers and magazines and televisions. Some things are right. Some things are wrong. He is God. He wrote the book. We have a longing for truth. And because he is raised, he's true. Number four. In fact, let's take number four and five together. Uh, In verse uh, 19. Instead of saying negatively that we are, because of the resurrection, not to be pitied, let us say we are to be envied. And, verse 14, instead of saying that our preaching, that is our ministry, is not in vain, let us say that because of the resurrection, everything we do for Jesus has value. Everything we do for Jesus lasts. Everything we do for Jesus counts. There is in your heart this morning, everybody in this room, there is in your heart a longing that your life not be pointless, empty, useless, meaningless. There is a desire that your life be significant, that it count. That you come to the end and having lived and ministered, want it to have borne some fruit for eternity. Not to be drained away into the sand like water that just goes down and comes to nothing in the hot sun of the desert. You want it to count. And what this text says is that life for those who follow Christ is not something pitiable. This slight momentary affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory. Or, at the end of the chapter 15, in verse 58, it says, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Everybody in this room wants to come to the end of his or her life and not say the words, I wasted it. Remember, my father used to tell a story of an old man that came to Christ in one of his evangelistic campaigns. And he walked to the front, very old, just weeping and received the Lord. And when he turned to give his testimony to the people, the first words that came out of his mouth were, I wasted it. I wasted it. Well, there's hope, just like the thief on the cross, that even for those who've wasted it, They can live. But none of us wants to say that at the end. Well, finally, number six, the longing for eternal joy, the longing not only to come to the end and say it's counted. It was valuable. It was significant. He made every work not to be in vain. But right at that point to go right on living forever. Verse 18 We should not only say the negative that because of the resurrection, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, that is, those who have died in faith, have not perished. But let us say positively, they are alive. They will never die. They will rise in glory. They will reign with Christ. We will not perish because of the resurrection. 
So to me, the greatest news in all the world is that God is most glorified. Jesus, the resurrected one, is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in all of these blessings that he gives me. So let's sum them up. He has given us forgiveness and glorified Jesus as the all-sufficient forgiver. He has given us a friend to count on and has glorified Jesus as the utterly reliable one. He has given us guidance and unchanging truth and has glorified Jesus as the foundation of that absolute truth. He has given us a life that is not pitiable, but enviable, a ministry that is not in vain, but fruitful and has glorified Jesus as the source and the goal of all that life and all that ministry. And he has given us everlasting joy and has thus glorified Jesus as the author of life. And the one who brought it forth out of the tomb and triumphed over death and will be the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And therefore, I just close with a a strong urging and invitation that you in your heart will just rise up with choirs in heaven and choirs on the earth and say from your heart this morning, maybe for the first time. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain and hath redeemed us to God to receive glory and honor and riches and strength and blessing forever and ever.